Good afternoon, beautiful people. I'm keeping all my content free of charge so there's complete transparency so everyone can get the benefit of all the information. This is a completely independent podcast, but any monetary support is greatly appreciated. Click the support this podcast link at the end of the episode description for more details. Now back to the show. Due to popular demand, you can subscribe to Kiko's Freethinkers Forum on YouTube. You can watch all of our videos there on our YouTube platform. Now you can also subscribe and listen to any of our audio on Spotify, Anchor, Radio Public, Podvine, Podbean, Amazon, and different platforms. Please tell your friends and family, and I hope you enjoy your day, beautiful people. afternoon beautiful people welcome to another episode of kiko's free thinkers forum this is episode 34 believe it or not we're really going um full force with the forum this year and we have a very special guest his name is mike termont and he is a libertarian candidate run for the office of the president of the united states in 2024 he previously ran for the u.s house in the state of florida in district 20 in 2021 and he obtained his phd in economics at the, at the George Washington University. And I want to welcome him to the show and I appreciate you accepting our invitation. Thank you, Kiko. No, uh, I appreciate you reaching out. It's a joy to be with you today. Yes, we have quite a bit to talk about. Um, before we get too much into the bio, I have to mention when I saw your site, the two things that stuck out, I think when you go to Mike Tomas' website is um, Austrian, economist and then it says pro-reform police officer and so that's kind of I was like wow let me look into this a little bit more once that's kind of how I found out but yeah I was just browsing the internet and I go to Ballotpedia a lot to find people who run for public office but um, I wanted to get a feel of um, how did you grow up where where are you from and what's been your journey leading us to this point of running for president of the United States I appreciate that. Uh, I don't know that it's the most interesting part of your show today, talking about <laughs> my background, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the condensed version uh, to spare your audience as much of uh, the most boring part as possible. I've had basically two careers, uh, each oriented in various ways around public policy. Uh, The first uh, was as an economist. I was a professional economist for over a couple of decades. I started out in banking. Uh, After getting out of engineering school and then later on uh, business school, I went to work for a couple of banks, went back to graduate school, as you mentioned, at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., where I studied economics. Uh, And and I studied at what we call a rational expectations school which means it is a is a philosophical descendant of the Chicago school with which uh, more people are slightly familiar, which itself is a descendant, philosophically speaking, of the Austrian school of economics, which is to say a natural skepticism of government intervention in the economy, a recognition that the economy works better when markets are allowed to do their thing, Rational expectations uh, in particular means that individuals take into consideration what they expect the government to do 
and in no small part uh, that in the long run serves to effectively nullify what it is the government is trying to do in terms of intervening in markets, uh, particularly monetary policy, and push things one direction or another. So it's, uh, it's a real pro-market uh, environment. I moved to Washington a billion years ago in the mid or late uh, 80s when I was in my mid or late 20s, thinking, and Kiko, you'll appreciate this, uh, I wanted to move to Washington to, to make the world a better place, right? Uh, you know, when when you were uh, a young conservative economist in those days, the idea was, if only I could get into the federal government and help them make better decisions and, and help push a pro-market uh, philosophy, uh, surely people would be able to make better decisions and the world would work better and everyone would make more money and, and it would just be a, a better earth on which we would live, right? <laughs> and uh, of course, as it turns out, the blob of Washington is a very uh, discouraging uh, place in the sense that it's hard to feel like you make a difference. But what really turned me off in the years that I was there, I was in Washington for probably 15 years, what really was discouraging was learning that even your party, I was a member of the Republican Party in those days, did not have a real deep investment in even what it was saying about fiscal conservatism. These were the days of uh, George Herbert Walker Bush, oh, yeah. read my lips, no new taxes, <laughs> which, which sounded good when you know, you're uh, all of, uh, I guess, uh, 27 at the time that he said that. But I was working for the White House a couple of years later, and he had said, basically, just kidding, when effectively, when he agreed to new taxes in negotiation over the budget with uh, Capitol Hill, that was a discouraging moment. And I think for me personally, it was all downhill from there in terms of having faith in government institutions doing the right thing in the long run. And then, as you mentioned, my second career was as a police officer. I moved to Washington, uh, from Washington to Florida, spent 20 years down there. I spent 11 years as a police officer in Broward County. I was on the road all of that time and working as a training officer and, and that is uh, an interesting experience. I'm a big believer in public service, not just in, in public policy development, but in public service generally. And so it was uh, a good experience from that standpoint. You, you do, as a police officer, fall in love with your community, whether you intend to or not. You know, that is something that really happens. You, you care, right? You, you take offense when there's crime committed against you know, your people, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, you really want to do right by the people you get to know in, in your area and your town. So all of that is true and good. And at the same time, that was around the same time as I registered with the Libertarian Party, registered as a voting Libertarian back in around 2010 and 11. Uh, at the same time, you do get discouraged by the fact that Police officers are all paid the same, whether they're, 
you know, great at their job or crappy at their job. Uh, there's a big buffer in terms of accountability between police performance and, and the impact on police officers themselves. Unions have shut down a lot of that. I believe that that has to change. I would like, I think we would all like it if local politicians did a better job of representing communities' interests when negotiating with police to gain greater control and more community involvement in the hiring, training, firing process. But I, I'm, I'm not optimistic that's going to happen, which is why I'm a big believer in replacing qualified immunity with a third-party private sector liability insurance provider. Bringing in someone from the outside, I believe, would provide a check on the system and, and bring some accountability so that in the long run, what we need to do is get police management, the, the business of policing, to look more like that in other industries where the good police officers get paid more, the mediocre get paid less, and the bad ones get fired or at least priced out of the market because the liability insurance would be too high. In a nutshell, what I've been doing the past 50 years, I should say 40 years, not quite that old. But See, I'm glad to ask that question. It wasn't it wasn't as boring as you thought it would be because um, you answered a couple of questions about um, sort of how your shifts politically happened, and you explained that around 2010 or so you became a libertarian and you grew up as a young conservative um, economist. But um, you already touched on police reform issues, and I had a question about that. You talked about ending qualified immunity and. I actually spoke with Hashaki Nichols. She's running as um, unaffiliated for president too. And we talked a lot about police reform and she agrees that um, in qualified immunity or at least sunsetting it is probably the best thing to do. Um, yeah. I was looking at a questionnaire that you took when you were running for the U.S. House and you said that defunding the police is not a serious um, proposition. What do you mean by that? Can you sort of elaborate on that? Yeah, I don't think it's really serious in the sense that it's neither a good idea nor something that anybody really supports that's deeply involved in public policy. I think it's not going anywhere. I think it's mostly sloganeering. You know, it's an expression of being anti-cop. And I think that there is, you know, there are a lot of people in the United States who are anti-cop. I mean, uh, I completely understand the frustration when you see, for example, videos of police officers doing the wrong thing. I think it's, you know, humanly natural to have a, you know, super negative reaction to that, right? Who who wants that sort of thing? Particularly, who wants that sort of thing on the on the public dollar, or mm -hmm. in the name of your community? It just makes it uh, all the worse. So I completely understand the emotional reaction to it. Nobody likes, you know, least of all, fellow cop, right? I mean. Of all the bad things that can be said about the bad behaviors from time to time of police officers, imagine it's even worse if you're a cop and you you know the difference between good police work and bad police work. And, and when you see bad police work, you know it's going to hurt you in the long run, too. So I've got no tolerance for that. But the truth of the matter is that uh, our society cannot get rid of our need for police. Uh, we do need to get rid of our war on drugs, so the criminalization, the, the criminal prohibition on drugs, which would change uh, a, a few things. 
But in the main, uh, we are not anytime soon getting rid of our need for police officers. So the idea is not to uh, reduce the budget, but to make our management of police officers more effective, mm -hmm. more accountable, more transparent, more flexible is a big one. One of the things that I think that we need to do to advance our cause in this regard is promote the idea that police agencies should be as small as possible and replaceable as possible. In other words, mm. uh, there should be more competition among agencies for providing those services to each town or county. Uh, in, the, in the city that I worked for in Broward County, Florida, we basically only had two options. We were lucky to have two. A lot of places don't even have two options, right? We had two options. One was the local police department and one was the county uh, sheriff's office. So if, if the mayor and the and the, uh, the the board decided they didn't like the way that their police department was being run, they could replace the chief and the uh, leadership. But another option they had would be to dump the entire agency and invite the sheriff's office to police the town instead. And, and they did consider that from time to time, which put not only cost pressure on the agency, which is appropriate, but alerted everyone in the agency to the idea that if, you know, we didn't do as good a job as we could, we could be easily replaced. Mm. And, uh, and, and that, that certainly would get your attention. And, mm -hmm. and that is a good thing, you know, whether it's uh, public schools or, or public police departments or any other business in the world, uh, competition is one of the most important ways to keep businesses operating as effectively as they possibly can. So there's, there's a lot that we need to do in terms of managing police officers, all moving in the direction of improving uh, police culture. Uh, police culture is something that needs to be improved. In some places, it's pretty good. In some places, it's not very good at all. I believe that we are making progress slowly over the years, but we have a long ways to, to go. I think um, some of the stuff you said, it definitely resonates um, with my audience. Um, there's, just, there's been so much talk, and you alluded to this earlier, I guess the volatility behind the term of defund the police. Myself, personally, um, I'm on board with that message, but at the same time, I'm very open to differences of opinion about it. I think at the very least, and I will agree with you on this, I think the very least that people are serious about police reform is that they could end um, immunity. Um, at the very least, because that to me, that shows like a good faith um, of, of holding people accountable. I think that's a very rational um, view to have is to at least hold people accountable. And then the other stuff, we can discuss it. But but I think that that's a starting base where people can sort of come on board. Like I say that to my friends who are um, a lot more into the, um, I won't say anti-police, but they're very hard on pushing to defund the police. And like I said, I'm sort of complicit in that too, but I'm also more open to reaching across the aisle when it comes to um, that issue. So I'm glad you uh, well, I certainly point. appreciate the feeling, right? Anytime, mm -hmm. yeah. uh, you know, for example, sometimes I get mad at public schools, right? Because they don't do a very good job. I think that uh, 
the teachers uh, unions get in the way of real effective management of uh, of teachers. But I don't think that the right solution there is is necessarily fewer teachers. Right. Uh, I mean, we could, you know, I'm, I'm certain that we could make progress if we had more effective teaching. Could we do with fewer teachers? Maybe, maybe. But that's a fairly uh, granular decision. Could we do with fewer police officers in some cases? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but that's not the bulk of the the bulk of our problem is not that we have too many teachers or too many cops. The bulk of our problem is we need to do a better job of managing them, a better job of recruiting the type that we want, training them in a way that better reflects our community values, holding them accountable, evaluating what's a good cop, what's a good teacher, what's a bad teacher, what's a bad cop, and then being able to, to pay them in a differentiated fashion and get rid of the bad ones, mm -hmm. you know? So yeah, there are places where we have too many teachers and too many cops. There may be places where we have too few cops and too few teachers, mm -hmm. but the issue is, uh, the bigger issue is how do you get the most out of each one of those individuals and make sure that you get rid of the ones that really shouldn't be in the business. And I think that's an interesting argument you brought up there about um, you compared the teachers union with the police unions. I, I never really even thought about it like that before. And um, and just the, the idea of, yes, I mean, certain areas may need more or less depending on the situation. So, no. And, and that's why I kind of learned with the audience and, and the guests, because this is a process. I think we have to open ourselves up to learning together. And um, and that's the only way I feel like we're going to advance is um you know, this dialogue that's, that's going to be needed more and more, but we see that the divisiveness is sort of encouraged now to, to help the two-party system. Um, and, I agree. And, that's the, and that kind of goes into everything else um, with these culture wars and censorship issues that are constantly happening. So, um, no, I'm definitely on board with a lot. Um, I agree. Before. I think you put your finger on something really interesting in the sense that the divisiveness is part and parcel of the two-party system. In other words, I think the divisiveness is not just something that naturally grows out of the two-party system, which it which it does, but it also contributes to the two-party system as they like it, as they mm -hmm. see it, uh, and helps propagate it. You know, each of... Uh, I'm obviously a few hundred years older than uh, than you are. Uh, but I can remember, I can remember when the Democratic Party was much more adherent to its philosophical agenda, and the Republican Party was much more adherent to its philosophical agenda than today. Today, uh, I would argue that each party's number one platform plank is to keep the other out of power. Oh, for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I remember uh, certainly I was a kid in the late 60s, but certainly in the early 70s, you could find Democrats who were really committed against war, mm -hmm. right? Just per se anti-war. I don't mean, uh, you know, around the edges, we can argue about what the right Ukraine policy is. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, they were anti-war, right? Like, like I and other libertarians are today. And you could find even as late as the 80s, uh, maybe even early 90s, hardcore Republican fiscal conservatives. 
mm-hmm. the kind of people who really wanted to hold the line on spending come hell or high water. You know, just do anything it took to control spending. You don't find that anymore. No. You know, you'll find some Republicans giving the Democratic administration a hard time about, well, maybe we shouldn't spend $2 trillion more. This was literally the argument two years ago. Maybe we should only spend $1 trillion extra. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry. Uh, if you're a libertarian and you're actually hardcore worried about the amount of money we spend and the amount of debt that we accumulate and the amount of inflation we generate, that is not a worthwhile distinction between a Republican and a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And you know, Kiko, this is where authoritarianism comes from in a democracy. You know, people often wonder, well, how does a democracy move toward authoritarianism? It comes from the idea that each party's leaders play to nothing but their base and then convince people, which you have to fear is not so much the loss of your individual liberties. What you really have to fear is that other idiot coming to power. And I can (laughs) protect you from that if you give me more power. Mm -hmm. And that's where it comes from. Oh, yeah. Um, I've basically, I've tried to explain to my audience, and we had Margaret Kimberly on um, in episode four, and we had Spike on a couple of times, Spike Cole. I'm a big Spike fan, by the way. I am too, and I'm a big Morgan Kimberly fan. The thing about me, I've told my audience they know that I identify as a libertarian, but I'm a left libertarian. But sure, I know so is Spike. I think. Um, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. We were, we were. Well, we'll, we'll let him defend about. himself then. We'll let him defend himself. Yeah, he 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 calls it being more libertarian. That's what he called it. That's the way he characterized characterized it. But um. Is some of the stuff you said about the anti-war, it's like now um, someone like myself, I consider myself someone that's on the the left, like the real left. Somehow the Democrats have co-opted what the left is. And like you said, they used to stand for stuff like anti, like all the things that you would think of a leftist standing for, like they, they're not, they're totally in line with the corporate like system. They're all yeah. about funding more wars and everything, just like the Republicans. I mean, it's like they're just yeah. in bed together, but they have different colors on the sheet. No, they're totally on board with sending $100 billion of stuff to Ukraine and, uh, you know, the Raytheons of the world oh, getting yeah, disgusting no and rich over it. They're they're all about it. They're, the Democrats look very much like Republicans used to look. <laughs> and the Republicans are way way out there now uh, <laughs> in terms of projecting power around the world. It used to be, I, this is funny, I just remembered this. It used to be that Republicans would talk about, well, someday we're going to be able to save a lot of money because we'll be the big power in the world, right? When we when we win the Cold War, mm-hmm. there'll be what we, a peace dividend. You remember that phrase? You're, mm-hmm. you're probably too young to remember that phrase. I've heard of it. We were all supposed to get a peace dividend. We were supposed to save a lot of money because we would have defeated the other important imperialistic powers. And therefore, we wouldn't need a military as big as we used to think mm-hmm. that we needed. That never happened. Our military spending never did go down. It just keeps going up and up and up. And then we were told, boy, this is a trip down memory lane. This is really, irrit- I'm irritating myself at this point. Just <laughs> remembering this stuff. 
Then we were told we were going to save a lot of money because of technology, that we could project power and defend ourselves in means that were high tech, right? That wouldn't require such expensive things like ships and tanks and people. And that didn't happen either. We keep spending more and more money, even though we're more high tech than ever before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's that's definitely a point that you make um, on your positions and on the site. And we're going to talk about monetary policy and your views about um, this is this is the part where I think I may have some disagreement with you is the decentralization aspect. First of all, I guess um, before we talk about monetary policy and stuff, I, I want to get a clarification on what is decentralization? What does that mean? Because I've heard that word thrown out a lot lately. Well, uh, what it means, at least what it means to libertarians, uh, what it means to me uh, is pushing power down from the federal government to state governments, from state governments to local governments, and from local governments to people, uh, so that decisions are made as locally as, as, as possible. Some decisions are inappropriate at the most local level. You, you wouldn't expect your counties to decide uh how to defend the united states right so i get that we're not going to push everything down to the local level but we want to limit government power and push as much back to to people to citizens as possible and to the extent to which power must reside with governments and we can all argue about how much or how little that is we want the decisions to be made as at as local a level as possible. So uh, as, as one small but important example, uh, even if you believe that the government had to play a role in education, which we can argue about, I think in the long run, government will not be in the business of education. Um, but even if you thought that the government did have to play a role in, in, in education, we believe that the federal government is the inappropriate place for that to happen. Uh, it should be pushed to states for them to manage as they see fit. And we would go one step further and encourage states to devolve that down to school board level. School boards ought to be able to make decisions for themselves, which in, in the main they are today. But uh, we saw, for example, in Florida, Governor DeSantis moving legislation that tied the hands of school boards uh, because he wanted, uh, uh, he and the Republican legislature in Florida wanted to impress upon school boards they wouldn't be allowed to teach certain things, mm, yeah. uh, wouldn't be allowed to include certain books. Um, and maybe you agree with all of that philosophy Maybe you disagree, but my point is we would prefer those decisions be allowed to the school boards. Mm -hmm. And further to that point, we would encourage school boards to do as good a job as possible at listening to parents. Mm -hmm. Parents are the ones that ought to be making as many decisions as possible, recognizing you can't make every decision through parents. You can't call a parent every 10 minutes and say, you know, how should I teach lesson number three in the math book? Right. But uh, 
but you can listen to parents when it comes to what kinds of things ought to be discussed. Maybe even the way certain things are discussed, which topics, which books uh, they do or do not want in a school library. One of the things that we need to remember in all this book debate in school libraries is that school libraries libraries don't include every book in the world, right? They include a tiny, 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 tiny fraction of all the books in the world. And so someone needs to decide which books, right? Right. We don't want the federal government deciding. We don't want the president deciding which books, you know, some school in Seattle ought to have and which books some school in Orlando, Florida ought to have. Nor do we want the Department of Education making that decision. We don't want the governor of Florida or the governor of any other state making those decisions. The school boards ought to be making those decisions in conjunction with feedback from their parents. And this is why school board officials are typically uh, elected so that they're responsive to their communities. And we believe that's the way it should work. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I like the way you explained that. I just have one question about um, the school board dynamic and the parents and everything. I didn't hear anything about the teachers. What do you think about the teachers having input in that if they're teaching the, co the course? Well, of course, uh, and and teachers naturally do because they have so much control in the classroom. But it's important to remember, uh, just like police officers, we're employees, right? Police officers are employees of the community and teachers are employees of their communities. Um, yes, a police officer and a teacher, they have enormous discretion. One of the things I was actually surprised by when I became a police officer is the enormous amount of discretion you have over how do you handle any particular situation. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes that's not a good thing. We can get into that, right? I mean, we all appreciate it when a police officer employs discretion at saying, no, I'm not going to arrest this person. This is someone who needs a lecture and to be told not to do it again, right? But we want the officer to make the right decision and arrest someone who really, sometimes people need to go to jail. Mm -hmm. um, enormous amounts of discretion there. Teachers have an enormous amount of discretion about how to teach certain topics, uh, you know, what words to use, where directions of discussion go. But we need the community's voices to be reflected in the management of cops and and teachers. Uh, so, yeah, you know, all of those people are stakeholders, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, just like police agencies, schools need more competition. Right now, uh, the public schools have an enormous advantage in most communities, not every community, in most communities, uh, public schools have an enormous advantage over other schools because the money that's raised by government to pay for schools so often only goes to public schools, which is really uh, a horrible, horrible thing from an economic viewpoint. There's no logical reason, there's no ethical reason, there's no economic efficiency reason why you would restrict the money that's collected to pay for kids' education to only go to public schools instead of any school the parent wanted. And it's a very weird thing that we've come to accept in the United States. And uh, we need to get rid of that. I think it's 
arguably our number one public policy problem in the United States is the monopoly that so many public schools have over their communities. They need, just like police departments, they need to feel like if they're not doing a great job, they can be easily replaced. And that's not the case today in either police agencies or too often in public schools. Interesting. Um, th does the school choice thing, that's another topic that I've really, uh, I haven't, I'm sort of underdeveloped in, I guess, having a view on it because right. um, I've always seen it as, well, wouldn't it just create um, a vacuum somewhere else if, if you have a preference of school um, and you have more people going to one school than the other one and then that school is kind of left, you know, like stranded in a way like that. That's kind of what I guess that would be my um, blind spot or gray area when it comes to that. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that. But it works. It, it should work like any other market. There's nothing car dealerships. You know, we don't say, well, we need to protect the car dealerships because if someone else starts a car dealership, what's going to happen to the old one? No, that's not how we think. Uh, I mean, I feel bad for the employees of the crappy car dealership that got run out of business because they weren't providing good service. That stinks. Uh, but they'll have to go to work for the new car dealership. And the old car dealership, you know, that floor space will be empty if they go out of business and someone else will turn it into either a restaurant or turn it into a new car dealership. And that's the okay. way it has to work in, in this case too. And by the way, uh, the, the most important thing that teachers unions don't understand, and there's no real reason why they should understand it. If they haven't studied economics or other businesses, they would naturally miss this. The most important thing they don't understand is Teachers will make more money when there is greater competition for their services. In other words, most teachers today, the vast majority of teachers in the United States do not have more than one agency competing for their service. Mm -hmm. If you live in Broward County, Florida, you are largely beholden to whatever Broward County wants to pay you. Mm -hmm. You can go to work for Palm Beach County if you want to commute really far or move, right? Or Dade County if you want to commute really far or move. But they pretty much got a monopsony over what they're willing to pay you. Mm -hmm. But if you had a complete uh, choice of where parents can send their kids, you would have real competition among private schools and between private schools and public schools. And people would want the best teachers. Mm -hmm. But private schools today try to save every penny where they can because they're strapped for cash. They don't have access mm -hmm. to public funding. And so you see teachers in many cases, some of the most fantastic teachers at the private schools getting paid very little money compared to public school teachers. And it's because they just don't have the, uh, the, the budgets. But imagine if you had multiple uh, providers competing for the best cops, the best teachers. Uh, I got to tell you, Competition drives up that competition. 
where you see in places like South Florida, where there's quite a few police agencies, not for any one town, but in all of South Florida, mm -hmm. there is some serious competition to bring in brand new officers. You know, there's people willing to pay 70, 80, $90,000 for a beginning police officer. Those are numbers that are starting to, to turn into real money, right? Uh, that's not the case typically for teachers. Um, and then what happens is, right. And then what happens is after you're hired, it's very difficult to change. They've got you. You know, you're developing a career. Maybe your pension is tied up with your agency. Uh, you know, geographically, uh, if you're a teacher, your school board controls a, a big geographic area. So you'd have to move if you want to change jobs. These are the things that hold back your compensation. And then the unions, boy, they really do not do public uh, employees a service when they demand that everyone get paid the same. You know, a, a six-year mm -hmm. officer gets paid this, period. No matter how crappy he or she is, no matter what kind of a star he or she is, that's how much you get paid. Mm -hmm. Same thing with the teacher. Mm. But imagine... If you're the type of person who really wants to do a good job, it can be very discouraging and you're not going to get paid for it. You know, you're going to go 80,000, 85, 90, 95, 100, mm -hmm. which is good money, right? But imagine if you got rid of the crappy ones. <laughs> I wish I wish I could hear those numbers that you just said um because I'm in the arts and humanities and so uh, You'll go your whole lifetime without making that kind of money. We're underfunded as it is, but something that you said about um, there's a bifurcation in um, academia. And see, I can't really speak much to, um, I can only speak to higher ed because that's all I've ever taught. Um, right. I can't really speak about secondary as, as much, but um, there's a friction between administration and teachers. And I think that's where we see the leveling, like, a lot of we teachers, like we don't feel like the the deans and stuff should be getting paid as much as, I mean, we're really, like you said, someone, a lot of the students would prefer me at some of the community colleges I taught at, but I was still leveled out as, okay, he's just an adjunct professor, whatever. While the people above me are making so much money. Yeah. But, and I'm really the reason why the students are taking the course. Like this two semesters, because they want to take Kiko as the professor. Yeah, and so it, this will, uh, agreed. This will not always be the case. It will probably be the case, well, let's, let's put it this way. It will certainly be the case in my lifetime. It will probably, unfortunately, be the case for the rest of your lifetime. But someday, probably toward the end of this century, <laughs> People are going to get much better at evaluating good education versus bad education. Today, and for the last 400 years, certainly for the last 300 years, what matters in college is the reputation of the institution, right? Mm -hmm. Which you're paying for up until very recently was nothing but the name of the school on your diploma. Well, and you're paying for an education, but you really had no idea 
especially if you're what 18 coming out of high school you have no way to evaluate how good the education is going to be you just trusted you know well harvard's famous everyone says it's the greatest uh <laughs> i'm sure my education is going to be great uh i don't have a good way of knowing whether it's going to be better or worse than another school yeah uh, but someday we will be better at this just like we're better to offer a, a a silly example we're better at evaluating restaurants than we used to be mm -hmm. right you can go online and read what 100 people said about the diner down the block more information than I want, right? I don't need everyone's criticism of the French fries, uh, you know, seven miles away from my house. <laughs> but if you want it, you can get it. Mm -hmm. And and now we have some information about uh, schools that's better than what it used to be. We have some information about teachers. You know, there's probably online forums that'll talk about you know what a good job you do in your class and when you piss somebody off there'll be a negative comment in there oh you know professor kiko said something stupid in class today everybody boycott his course right, right. <laughs> it goes both ways it goes both ways unfortunately well as it should but someday we'll do a much better job of evaluating what it is that makes education valuable and people will be more willing to pay for those things that creates value in education. And that's when there'll be more competition for the teachers that create that value. Up until now, what really drove compensation for professors uh, would not be for, for guys like you and me. I taught economics at three different universities myself, but always as an adjunct mm -hmm. uh, while doing something else, right? But what really drives compensation for professors is research that brings in research funding to the university. It's all about the coin. It's not about the education. You could be pretty mediocre. You could be pretty bad in a classroom mm -hmm. and be a highly paid, fully tenured professor making six figures even even 15 years ago you could be making $100,000 as a full professor with tenure at a state university and be crappy in the classroom mm -hmm. just because you did a good job of bringing money to the university and that's what they were competing for that's the professors they wanted mm -hmm. and I believe this system is going through change now and, you know, 20 and 40 years from now, there'll be real competition for people who want to be good teachers, both in elementary school, high school, but also in higher education, too. Uh, for your sake, I hope it's uh, sooner rather than later. Oh, well, um, I have one foot in and one foot out right now. But I'm, I'm really taking this time to just sort of breathe, honestly, because I've recently got a Ph.D., and so I'm just sort of evaluating my options right now. But yeah. I have a passion to teach, but it's just, it's, it's a process. And it's really hard being in the humanities and the arts. Um, a lot of my colleagues are leaving academia because of there's not a lot of incentive to um, continue. You don't bring in research funding 
And that means that the only value to your employer is in terms of bringing in uh, tuition paying students and they don't have a way of evaluating what a good teacher is and what a bad teacher is. So you're just a, a cog in the machine. Mm -hmm. That's the way it is. Same thing with uh, high school and elementary school teachers. Same thing with cops. Yeah, and it makes you not, and see, it makes you, it takes away the art of teaching and then everything's about research. Everything's about scholarship and yeah. It Agreed. definitely creates a whole nother set of issues. But yeah. I want to go back to the decentralization uh, element and only because I read the two essays you had posted on your site, where within the Libertarian Party, even not, there's a debate as far as um, there's some people who are like, they think that we need to divorce our federal government. And there's some people who think that, um, no, we don't need to do that because that would be, that that's not libertarianism. Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I was thinking about the consolidation of power more so than anything when you were talking about um, state control. Um, that's always scared me when I hear things going back to the states, because to me, I, I definitely agree that the government has too much power, like the federal government, but wouldn't there be a, a danger of the state just consolidating power just like the federal government? Yes. Which is just another form of state. <laughs> is it okay if we agree? Yeah, that is okay. <laughs> that is a problem. Um, the The issue is, well, yes, that's a worry. There's there's no getting around that. And in, in fact, you could devolve all of the power all the way down to your county and still find exactly. find a problem, right? I mean, you get some jerk as your is your county administrator, you're in a world of hurt. Yeah. So, yeah, there's no silver bullet from stopping schmucks trying to run your life in government. There's just no silver bullet. And that's mm -hmm. why we need to design systems that uh, explicitly uh, limit that power as much as possible. Now, the reason that we like the idea of decentralization is because we believe uh, – in, in two things that might matter. One is we think that you probably have a little bit more control over your state house than you do over Washington. Mm -hmm. This is not always the case, but a little bit more control. Okay, that's number one. Number two, and, and yeah, when, when that's not the case, that stinks. And I'm not gonna argue with you, right? Uh, number two, to the extent to which there are cultural differences across the states. And with regard to some issues, there's big differences. And with regard to other issues, there's, you know, no difference at all. But when there are important cultural differences across the states, we think it's inappropriate for a federal government to make up its mind and impose a solution on everybody. Mm. So, you know, when uh, to pick two big examples, when Texas and Massachusetts disagree, why is it that the federal government should be settling that debate for them and imposing a solution on them? I don't think that's appropriate. Mm -hmm. Then the other reason is the old argument, which I believe is true, even though it's an old argument, that states need to be uh, what we call laboratories, right? That we need to allow... 50 different solutions to see which ones stink. 
it used to be the line would be, you know, try 50 different solutions and see which ones work best. Mm -hmm. But as a libertarian, I find that most government solutions stink. So what we're really trying to do is figure out which ones stink worse so we can stop doing those. <laughs> so, for example, um, to pick something that's uh, really controversial lately, especially in states' rights, mm -hmm. if, uh, if a couple of very conserv culturally conservative states decide we don't like uh, abortion being legal. Texas is going to take one approach. Mm -hmm. You've seen where they even open uh, certain participants in the process to civil uh, liability. A lot of people don't like that, right? Some people in Texas don't like it. A lot of people in other states think it's insane. Uh but there are other conservative states who also don't like abortion being uh, legal who might try a different approach. And over time, we will see how it actually works in practice. Is the Texas approach as insane as some people fear? Uh, probably, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> probably. Uh, but, you know, I could be wrong about that. Um, maybe it'll work out better than than what we think it will. And uh, we'll learn something from that. The other thing about it, going back to the imposition of solutions on people, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, of all people, Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote uh, 30 years ago that is whatever you may feel about Roe v. Wade. And we all have opinions on Roe v. Wade. However you feel, you have to admit, I'm paraphrasing, this is not exactly how she put it, but it's her idea, so I can't take credit for it. However you feel about it, you have to admit that by imposing one view nationally on every state, you preclude each state the opportunity to work it out for themselves mm -hmm. okay now maybe you don't you know maybe that bothers you maybe it doesn't bother you maybe you don't like the way you your state legislature would go so you're okay with your state legislature having its hands tied mm -hmm. but that's it's but consider if you're in the minority view in your state uh, you know, is that really how you want to settle a debate is by, oh, good, the national government told the majority of people in my state to, to go shove it. So I got my way. Right. That's not, that's not democracy. That's not politics. That's not even protecting civil rights. That's just getting lucky, right? That's just <laughs> having a federal government that agreed with you. So, you know, Gins Ju Judge Ginsburg's point was, when you preclude each state the opportunity to work it out, that subverts the political process. Okay, maybe that's a big thing, maybe it's not. But look, fast forward 50 years, Roe v. Wade falls. Uh, by the way, as a technical matter, however you feel about abortion, as a technical matter, I believe that decision was decided correctly, that Roe v. Wade uh, should not have been allowed to withstand 
judicial scrutiny that um and i'm not arguing the underlying facts right but as right. a technical matter uh i think the judge has probably decided that correctly that roe v wade had to fall but having said that uh now you have this explosion of states figuring out what to do and everyone's mad because you're taking 50 years of bottled up political right feeling and mm -hmm. you got to decide now mm -hmm. that's not an easy thing to do uh so however you feel about abortion that's the argue for de argument for decentralization mm -hmm. is that each state should be trying to figure out its own uh approach to this does that make sense it does yes um i didn't i don't want to focus too much on this because um but but it's also a good thing because I'm grasping, you know, the con you know, the concepts a lot more. I know my audience will appreciate that too, because um we're all thinking through this together. But I did want you to sort of elaborate on this gold new deal, because when I hear the word gold, I was thinking the currency, like I'm like right. you're talking about going back on the gold standard, which um I wouldn't be totally opposed against, you know, because we have to do something with the, just this printing of the money is just is insane yeah. right now. And yeah. um, you have quite a few um, tenants when it comes to this gold new deal. Um, where does this come from? The gold new deal? Is this something that um, you coined or is that from FDR and you just sort of made it your thing and, and made it uh, Mike Termas sort of philosophy? Well, yeah, we made our campaign invented it. We're, we're, poking fun at the new deal a little bit right <laughs> we're poking fun at the green new deal a little bit but the idea first of all gold is a double entendre right it's the color of the libertarian party mm -hmm. as opposed to blue or red for the democrats and republicans uh the libertarians are gold uh and it is a bit of a double entendre in the sense that reminds you of the gold standard that's okay. Mm. And, and, and that speaks to the fact that we do want to get back to a rules-based monetary policy. I wouldn't go all the way back to a gold standard, but I would go in that direction toward what I call rules-based. We can talk about that. But th the reason that we're going after the, the New Deal language is because we believe that we need a real fundamental change to the relationship between government and Americans, which is what the New Deal brought in the 1930s under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. We believe that he went the wrong direction in the type of change he made mm -hmm. in that relationship. So we want to go uh, ahead toward the type of relationship that would be more appropriate where Americans have more control over their lives, where states have more control over their political futures so the gold new deal talks about first of all decentralization devolving power to the states so the idea there is states would have a constitutional option if we were to have our way not suggesting this is easy to pull off by the way but we would want the want the states to have a way of opting out of federal supremacy for laws and executive orders coming in, in the future. So 
to the extent to which there was discrepancy between federal law and state law, a state would be able to settle that in its own court, in state court. Okay. We'd be able to effectively nullify federal law that was in contradiction, except for those very few things like national defense that are explicitly mentioned in, in, in specific uh, actual language in the Constitution. But for everything else, states should be able to chart their own political futures. And then underneath that, we talk a lot about the ways in which the relationship should change. For example, uh, I find it inappropriate that the federal government the last 100 years or so has been able to tax individuals and individual corporations. This is a relatively recent thing in American history. 100 years is a long time, but it's not forever. Mm -hmm. uh, we should not have an organization like the IRS, which, as we all know, as anyone in your audience who's ever been audited by the IRS knows, is one of the most powerful police organizations in the world. Oh, no doubt. They have yeah. their own courts. They have their own courts where you are presumed guilty until you can prove yourself innocent. The IRS is always presumed right and you need to battle against that. That's an uphill climb. We believe that a more appropriate way for the federal government to raise money is to go to the states, to go to the state legislatures themselves. And this is not only because I don't like the direct relationship between individuals and the federal government in terms of money, but also because states are better able to stand up to the federal government. So when the federal government says we need uh, $3 trillion, states will be able to negotiate them down. Not easily, right? That's not easy. I'm not suggesting any of this is easy. Mm -hmm. But a state legislature, particularly in conjunction with its other fellow states' legislatures, would have a lot more ability to negotiate with the federal government than you and I do. If the federal government said, you know, uh, Kiko, you owe us $10,000 and Mike, you owe us another $10,000. No amount of you and I getting together with seven of our buddies and writing a nasty letter <laughs> to Washington is going to get a, yeah, I don't think so. I'll give you 8,500 because I think that uh, the defense budget is too big. That letter is not getting traction. No. Right. It's just, it's just not. Uh, indeed, I think that you could probably have several hundred thousand people on that letter as signatories, and we're still not They're getting still to anything. Mm -hmm. Whereas uh, if you had 26 state governors say, you know what, we discussed this in the legislature and we don't think so. Mm -hmm. Now you're talking about a conversation that would be very difficult for the federal Congress to disregard. Mm. You get where I'm going? Yep. The other, and remember this all comes from a place of libertarianism, believing that the government has too much power and too much of our money. Mm -hmm. If on the other hand, you believe that the federal government should have more money and more power, oh. <laughs> then maybe you like the system the way it is. So uh, remember where I'm coming from. Similarly, 
uh, I believe that it's far too easy for the government to go to war. Oh, definitely. You know, you notice that most of our military conflicts, the president just engages himself and, you know, has a phone call with a handful of leaders in Congress. You know, you get the gang of eight on a conference call <laughs> and you tell the uh, Nancy Pelosi's of the world and the Mitch McConnell's of the world, you know, we're going to invade Iraq. And they're like, how come? Well, for this reason. Oh, okay. Ciao, ciao. All right, good night. Everyone hangs up. That's only a slight exaggeration. Mm -hmm. That's basically the rubric for developing the protocol for how this works. It stinks. So mm -hmm. our idea under the Gold New Deal is to say, look, every military intervention ought to have a declaration of war, which means a formal uh, engagement by U.S. Congress. And any declaration of war should be should be subject to the approval of the states. If you can't convince a majority of states, legislatures, and governors that we should be going to war, maybe we shouldn't be going to war. Mm -hmm. That's uh, for us. This is a really important point. Because we believe that the American people have not been served well by a federal government that does not appreciate our basic values. I would argue that there really are not examples of military interventions in which the U.S. has the U.S. military has participated that people would point to and say, that was a good idea. You know, it cost us uh, this many billions or in the case of Iraq, a trillion. It cost us this many uh, lives, Americans and foreign lives. But nonetheless, we think that was a good idea. There really aren't those examples. Mm -mm. There really aren't. We have not been served well. Whatever you might say about the U.S. military, about how good it is at, at tactical things, very good at... Uh, blowing things up, death and destruction, very good at moving material weapons, people from one place to another, very good at controlling land, controlling seas, very good at projecting power, very good at protecting our borders. Having said all of that, the American military has not achieved what you would call long-term strategic success in terms of advancing America's interests in the world. I don't think you can argue the world is a better place for the United States having invaded Iraq or mm -hmm. Afghanistan. And I worry very much that a dozen years from now, we're going to say the same thing about Ukraine. And make no mistake, the United States is at war. Oh, this yeah. is no longer merely a proxy war with Russia, which it is. Mm -hmm. But it's not 
it's not merely proxy in the sense that it's not just Ukrainians. It's $100 billion of Mike and Kiko's money and money from your, all your listeners. And hopefully your listeners uh, have more money than you and I do, so they're putting more money in than, than we are. <laughs> it's not just their money. Uh, and by the way, we're producing stuff just for the Ukrainians at this point. This isn't like old Jeeps and, you know, half used weapon systems sitting out in the, the back uh, behind the warehouses in the cornfields. No, <laughs> we're producing brand new stuff just for the cause, just as we would for any other war in which we were engaged. And we have almost 1000 troops there today. Mm that are serving in advisory capacities, teaching people how to use the weapons, right? Because you can't just send this stuff over there and expect, well, everyone's going to automatically know how to read the manuals in English and learn how to use them on their own. So we've got people, we've got money, we've got uh, goods, weapons, intelligence. Uh, we provide intelligence that we collect with our satellite technology, drone technology, mm -hmm. overflight, uh, camera technology. This is all collected, processed, and delivered by U.S. troops and contractors. We're at war. And I fear very much that because this is not something that was ever central to American strategic interests, we're going to lament this uh, soon and for a long, long time. Yes, I totally agree with that. Um, and I definitely, I definitely can see that side more as far as um, the spending. But see, I guess I would argue as um, as as a leftist, and I think this is where coalition building is really important. This issue of war is like this is a dastardly situation, um, and even. And it actually makes it more reasonable for um, leftists and libertarians across stripes to work together because, I mean, you talk about climate crisis. Well, war is the number one contributor to environmental destruction. So, oh, absolutely, so it is. That's a really interesting point. In nature, like the, these issues um, go hand in hand. And when you have that much money going outside of our economy, when we could be arguing basically about what programs you want over here. Well, we can't even have that discussion because the money's been spent somewhere else. I mean, it's just and, it's a terrible thing. And and that's something as a basis, and that's why I urge my listeners to stop uh, writing off people who share very important uh principle views like this. I mean, because a lot of my audience probably do identify as like people on the left and not this Democratic Party blue left, this fake left stuff. Right. But um and we yeah. really have to work across um, um, ideolo ideologies, and and in this case, an issue this important, we can't be arguing and stuff about it. We just need to find some I, way. I agree with you hundred percent. With it, yeah. I was real proud of our Libertarian Party leadership a month ago when uh, they helped uh, form a coalition mm -hmm. with the People's Party. Uh, the People's Party not being a group I had 
much awareness of. It's a group mm -hmm. that grew out of the Bernie Sanders movement. Yeah. Not a group of folks I typically ran with, right? Um, but the Libertarian Party, the People's Party came together, formed a coalition with a bunch of other like-minded people when it came to war, anti-war, mm -hmm. and put on a rally in Washington called the Rage Against the War Machine. Couple thousand, three three thousand people were there. Uh, a lot of media attention. Uh, people like Ron Paul and Tulsi Gabbard were there. Uh, it was a it was a real good rally. Like I say, the media attention alone was worth it. But just the ability to demonstrate to each other that we can form coalitions mm -hmm. when when we find a particular issue on which we agree we need to go for it mm -hmm. you know we can't be punching each other in the face because we have some disagreement over abortion or uh what we should be spending money on regarding mm -hmm. social security when we all agree you know we need to stop the united states going to war every 10 minutes let's let's fight that battle together mm -hmm. where we can where we can join hands so I agree with you hundred percent. That was a real important uh, demonstration rally. Uh, not only demonstrating against the, uh, the war, but demonstrating that we can form important coalitions. And yeah, and there's a lot of that going on too. And, and the mainstream is not going to show that. Um, there was another rally um, recently to answer coalition, um, which is more of the left wing um, alliances um, um Party of Socialism and, and Liberation, the Green Party, a lot of those people, the Copink people. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The Green on. Party was at the anti-war rally. Exactly. I met uh, Jill Stein. Yeah, Jill Stein, uh, Medea Benjamin, um, one of the co-founders of Copink, she was there. But there was so much um, conflict within Copink, they basically told her, like, you know, you're going there, whatever that's going to be. You're representing yourself. You're not representing us. And see, that's too much of that going on. Um, and I think that's all this pressure to sort of cater to whatever audience. You don't want to ostracize this group, but you want to keep this group intact. I just think that that's bad. Um, if you're anti-war, you're anti-war. It shouldn't matter who's with you. And I just, I, I, and I see this stuff going on constantly. And they wonder why we can't defeat the duopoly is because they, they're playing basically into their hands at that point when you separate Absolutely. More, and more and more. Absolutely. And a huge opportunity for us in 2024, for example. So yeah, we need to, we need to get much, much better at that sort of thing. You know, you brought up another issue where, I believe that we can we can form more coalitions. Uh, you know, we were talking monetary policy, uh, and you, you were saying, for example, you could see yourself potentially supporting going all the way back to the gold standard. My feeling is, I spent a lot of time around the Federal Reserve, not as an employee, but I was in the banking industry for a long time. I worked for the White House for a couple of years. And I worked as a free market advocate inside financial services for quite a few years after that. And then later on, I had my own business educating bankers before teaching uh, economics in universities. I spent a lot of time on regulatory issues 
with Federal Reserve economists. And I got a lot of respect for these uh, for these people, very smart, very hardworking people that want to do the right thing. Indeed, uh, I met with the Federal Reserve Board in the uh, boardroom itself, and I had my research on the banking industry cited publicly by the Federal Reserve Chairman. Mm. So I, I don't mean to throw these people under the bus, but that institution is utterly incapable of living up to the mandate that we as a society have given to it. It just can't be done. We need to relieve them of this obligation and take away the discretion that they have with which to exert monetary policy and replace it with rules. Now we can all argue about what that rule should be, right? Uh, my favorite and the way I think that we should go is a Milton Friedman idea from the 1980s uh, that says you increase the amount of money, the amount of money stock in the economy by a fixed rate every year. Something that would be approximately two or three or 4% because the economy grows at approximately that rate. Our population grows a little bit. So you'd want it to be something along that, those lines. It almost doesn't matter what the number is as long as it doesn't change. Mm -hmm. And that way, when you saw price increases, you would know it's because the economy is heating up. And when if, if you saw some deflation, you would understand the reason for that, too. And there'd be an automatic adjustment mechanism there. And that's the way that we would want it to work. And it would give people the chance to use that pricing mechanism. You know, in economics, we talk all the time about how important it is for markets to work, including the market for money. And so you would know why prices were changing. You wouldn't have to say to yourself, well, is it? you know, because the Fed is doing something weird this month or weird last year uh, and constantly guessing. That's one of the things that really undermines the way that money markets work and the way the banking system works is the, the change and the unpredictability of Federal Reserve monetary policy. So I would get rid of the Federal Reserve system. Mm -hmm. I would replace that monetary policy mechanism with, with a rules-based system. I would get rid of all these bank bailouts. I would get rid of the Fed balance sheet and transfer it to the Treasury Department and make it subject to federal law, which would make it much more difficult to bail out these institutions because you'd have to pass a law to do it. Uh, no silver bullet, but as you know, it's hard for Congress to agree on much. Mm -hmm. So it would at least slow down the process instead of the Fed, instead of the Fed just one night in the middle of the night saying, well, we got to you know, $20 trillion balance sheet, we can bail out anybody we want. That's not the way we want this to uh, to work. And then I would change the way regulation is managed as well. Most banks do have options about who regulates them. In, in fact, all banks have an option about who regulates them. And uh, I would give them another option, which is to say no regulation at all. Most banks wouldn't take us up on that because they all believe they need a regulator uh, to give them a good housekeeping seal of approval, right? Uh, but I believe that some institutions would try a private sector auditor instead of a, a regulator 
And I would like to see that uh, put into place. So there's there's a lot that we can do to get rid of the Fed, to, to reduce its power. And that is really the nexus of what drives inflation in the United States. Mm-hmm. So we need to, to get rid of that. And of course, we need to cap federal spending. Spending is what drives taxation. Uh, it feeds inflation. It undermines markets and, and we need to get rid of it. We can't be building debt on top of debt on top of debt that uh, your children and my grandchildren will have to deal with and their children will have to deal with for a century to come. It's very, very dangerous. All of this, to your point, are different planks in the Gold New Deal platform. Mike, I tell you, I wish we could talk longer, but I definitely have, I have some places to go this afternoon, unfortunately. But I do want to have you back on the forum. And I was going to ask you. I love that. Would you be open to having a presidential discussion debate with other candidates? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, outside of the Libertarian Party, inside the Libertarian Party. Uh, you know, some of your important connections are outside the Libertarian Party uh, with other independent uh, folks and uh, folks that represent other parties. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a tremendous amount of fun. Um, and I think your audience might enjoy that, too. I do, too. And um, we're in conjunction with two or three other channels right now. We're trying to iron out the details. And we want to do that also before um, the, the, I guess, the primary start with um, the parties. And so, I, yeah, I let's do it later on this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's do it in 2023. Don't wait until 2024. Oh, no, we're not going to wait to 2024. Yeah. So, so people's names and stuff are already out there. And the visibility aspect is really. Um, that is the ultimate um, uphill battle for people running outside of the um, the Dem Republican is what I call yeah. Dem Republican Party. Um, just uh, and then the, the, the Libertarian the Libertarian Party, my party, we do have ballot access. We've got a couple of real challenges in some specific mm-hmm. states, uh, but uh, by and large, you know, last time we had fifty state ballot access. That's awesome. It is awesome. And so as far as the the non-Republican Democrats go, we're the big player. Uh, we are really, I think the best way to look at it is the smaller of the three parties that has total ballot access. Okay. Um, and, and that's why I believe that we have such an important opportunity in 2024. Having, having said all that, yeah, I think uh, a debate uh, with other folks seeking their party's nominations for president would be a lot of fun. I think you should uh, invite a Republican and a Democrat too, but I don't think they'll take you up on your offer. Um, I tell you, Mike, that's the one thing I really, and I've had people to come on that, that they probably do represent one of those camps, but on my forum, I feel like they just already have too much spotlight as it is. And so I have no interest. The hell with them. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm like, they have their outlets and stuff. People, they don't invite us into their groups. No doubt. Exactly. And they see it as like, oh gosh, we're going to assist them and, and elevate them more. So I'm I like, take it back. I don't know focus, what I was thinking. Let's focus on building from the outside and, and see if it can grow. But um, how would my audience reach you in case they had a question or a comment? 
yeah. and they want to keep in touch with you, what would be the easiest way? Yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, two websites, my email address. Uh, the the website is miketremont.com. Of course, you'd have to spell it right, which would be a challenge. It's <laughs> M-I-K-E-T-E-R-M-A-A-T dot com. You can email me at mike at miketremont.com. Uh, you can go to, to see the platform at goldnewdeal.org. Uh, don't go to goldnewdeal.com because they'll try to sell you something, <laughs> uh, which is not necessarily a bad idea, but it's it's not our website. Uh, goldnewdeal.org.org is where you can read about just the, the platform that we're running on. That's, uh, that's real important. And uh, if you, you know, if you go on MikeTremont.com, you like what you see, you can sign up to volunteer if you feel like it. We need folks to help us with outreach, of course. Uh, if you got a few dollars that are in your pocket and really annoying you and you want to get rid of that, there's a way to do that at MikeTremont.com. So it's very fun. It's got uh, videos and stuff written up there and links. And it's, uh, it's as much fun as a political website can be. It is a very dynamic and it's a um, it's a creative website for sure. And um, I enjoyed navigating through it. And I would definitely link all that information in the descriptions of the episode. Um, beautiful people, this was a great episode 33, um, 34 actually. Yeah, we, we have so many coming out. And then we uh, next week, for instance, um, we have uh, Tina Landis. She's going to be coming on to talk about the climate and environment. We have um, Cecilia Prado that's going to talk about some labor movements and just um, activity that's going on around Nashville, Tennessee. We have my dissertation director, Dawn Duke, promoting her new book, Mayaya Rising, um, along a panel with four people um, in the upcoming month of April. We have Norman Finkelstein coming on um, later in April to discuss his new book as well. We have so many professors, activists, politicians, um, coming out to the forum and we really appreciate uh, just all the attention and all the dedication to the listeners and the guests and Mike again I can't thank you enough for accepting the invitation and we can't wait to have you back on absolutely uh, my joy thank you so much I'm grateful for the time that we had together I look forward to it in the future definitely thank you so much beautiful people have a great day and we'll talk soon <laughs>